Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. Good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. Sheriff, you're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking otaku and kawaii. We're talking the precursor to Black Swan. And we're talking about a slasher film where all of the victims are men and no women die. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. And we're talking I'm a pop idol, not an actress. <laughs> okay, Jodie Foster. <laughs> Everyone, we are discussing the classic, I guess now classic anime, mm -hmm. Perfect Blue. And... um yes. Yeah, Joe, this is one that you really wanted on this on this schedule. This is true. Yes, I've been waiting for a couple of years to talk about this. So I was very excited when it became a little bit more publicly accessible on a streamer. But also it just got a really gorgeous new Blu-ray release uh, about a month and a half ago, maybe longer at this point. But uh, yeah, folks, if you have not checked this out, this could be a confusing episode because there's a lot of doubles going on. So we do recommend checking out the movie. Yes, and it's a very brisk 80 minutes and boy yes. oh boy was i happy about that joe <laughs> right it knows exactly what it's doing and then it gets the fuck out it really really does um but okay well so before we jump into this why don't we bring in our guest waiting in the wings because we have a return guest everyone uh she is a film critic for the austin chronicle and the programming director of the austin asian american film festival and a film booker at the alamo draft house you may also remember her from our episodes on fatal frame and the handmaiden please welcome back Jenny Nolf. Hello. Ooh. Hello. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you ready to talk Perfect Blue, Jenny? Oh, I so am. Well, okay, so y'all are going to be the, the the drivers in this episode because I am completely new to this film. When did y'all first see this? Jenny, go first. 
I was actually trying to remember that the other day. <laughs> I, I think I saw it for the first time before I had Letterboxd. So that would wow. be placing it like maybe in 2013, I mm. think, because okay. I got Letterboxd in 2014. And I, I know I had seen it before I logged it. And I was looking at that today. And I was like, no, I saw it before that date. <laughs> <laughs> Damn you, Letterboxd. Those dates don't add up. <laughs> oh, my God. I guess, how did y'all hear about this? Because I heard about this at the Grapevine just merely a few years ago, but I, I really had no idea this movie existed. I'll let Joe go first. Okay, so I had a friend in high school. We did karate together. And one of the things that we would do socially is I would go over to his house and hang out. And he was more open-minded when it came to movies than anyone else I knew. So I didn't really get into like international films or even like, films that weren't sort of schlocky 80s horror movies Mm -hmm. until uh nearly like the year 2000 like right as i was finishing up high school and it's because of this guy that you know we would just sort of randomly go to the video store and pick things off the shelf based on what the cover looked like so i first saw like evil dead 2 because of this guy (laughs) i saw brain dead because of this guy and then I also ended up getting my introduction into anime because of him. And it wasn't this title. It was actually Ninja Scroll, which uh, also features a healthy dose of rape. So, folks, that is your content warning for this episode. Mm. Thankfully, it's not tentacle rape like Ninja Scroll. But barring that weirdness, it was enough to get me interested to seek out some other anime titles. So because of that, I checked out like Akira and when I was doing sort of preliminary research, like, oh, what should stupid white boys from the suburbs go and check out if they're interested in anime? This was one of those titles that would come up. And I was like, I've never heard of this. I don't know what it's about. And funnily enough, it actually represents all of my interests, right? It's a teen girl storyline. It's got doppelgangers. And it's basically an erotic thriller in disguise. Hmm. Jenny? Well, the first time I think I watched it because the second time I logged it clearly was not the first time was I watched it around the same time I watched Paprika, which is Satoshi Khan's other film, um, one of his other popular films. He has a few, but he passed away prematurely. Very sad. Oh, shit. And yeah, I remember hearing about this movie through the grapevine. I mentioned it like prior to recording, but Darren Aronofsky had purchase the rights to this movie and there's mm-hmm. a lot of snarky people that are like well Requiem for a Dream and Black Swan are basically Perfect Blue yada yada so Perfect Blue had been on my radar for a really long time um, a lot of people in my Japanese classes had loved it so I'm like I vaguely think in my early 20s like 20 probably 2013 is when I first watched it at home because I remember watching it in my old house on my little TV and kind of being blown <laughs> away and then I didn't revisit it until much later in my 20s and I think it's just a really exquisite work of art and quite a great thriller. <laughs> Yeah. And it holds up too. That's the exciting thing. I was really trepidatious because I feel like I've been a big blowhard for this movie, like telling people it's such a fantastic film. And you know how sometimes when you see those films at certain points in your life, and then you go back and revisit it, and you realize, oh, shit, maybe I was blowing smoke up people's asses. (laughs) But not in this case, this movie 100% holds up. Yeah, I, I honestly like I mean, I know it's not really a slasher film, but like there is slashing that gets done in this movie. I didn't know this was a horror film. I thought this was like a sci fi movie, um, which is really on me for not doing the work. But um, <laughs> yeah, so OK, <laughs> Let, let's go into this, though. So 
Perfect Blue was Satoshi Kon's first directorial effort, and it all started with a man named Masao Murayama. Uh, he is the co-founder of the Japanese animation studio Madhouse, and he appreciated Kon's work on the OVA JoJo's Bizarre Adventures. And OVA, OVA stands for Original Video Animation, and it's a term used to describe Japanese animated films and series made specifically uh, for release in home video formats without prior showings on TV or in theaters. They were originally made available on VHS, then you know, moving to Laserdisc and DVD. But mm-hmm. starting in 2008, the term OAD, which is Original Animation DVD, began to refer to DVD releases published bundled with their source material manga. Maruyama contacted Khan to ask if he would be interested in directing an OVA adaptation of Yoshikazu Takeuchi's novel Perfect Blue, Complete Metamorphosis in the fall of 1994. Now, have either one of y'all actually read the source material for this? I have not. No, I have not either. Okay. Well, I'm going to go into a couple of the differences in a bit. So, Takeuchi allegedly first planned a live-action film based on this novel, but due to funding difficulties, it was downgraded to -to direct-to-video and then direct-to-video animation. Rude. (laughs) Well, I I was trying to think. I was like, I guess... Because, you know, in in the States, we have direct-to-video, and it's kind of, well used to be looked down on as like you know less than if it didn't go to theaters and i was a little surprised to see that japan had the same kind of hierarchy almost of media releases yeah i wonder if that was like a specific time too right like right when that market was sort of starting to become financially viable they were like okay well we can maybe make quick bucks by just doing things either direct-to-video or direct-to-video anime. It's funny, I don't associate animated fare with cheaper because it seems so time-laborious to me. Yeah. Um, I do want to add that video was a big moneymaker in Japan throughout the 90s. Yeah. And that was, like, I I would argue bigger than America. Like, it was huge. And there's a lot of original direct-to-video films um, from a lot of very popular directors because they would just agree to make these movies for a quick budget like our small budget quick time frame mm-hmm. to make a, like a ton of money it was just like right off the chain well th- that's I, I guess that's what i meant sorry not necessarily that we had you know theater direct video whatever but then it was considered a downgrade you know because yeah it, it, it the, this seems to be the bread and butter of a lot of japanese cinema i wouldn't call it a downgrade i would just use the word cheaper because it was just cheaper to make Mm. suddenly if they were making it direct to video but i wouldn't call it a quality downgrade per se right got it well so when khan received the initial offer it was for an ova again original video animation so he made perfect blue as just that um but then it was decided to be released as a movie in a hurry just before its completion So this work was originally made as video animation for the narrow market, so it was expected to disappear as soon as a few people talked about it, because it was like, boom, 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 we gotta churn out all more stuff, so here's Perfect Blue, we're going on, moving on. The fact that such a work was treated as a film, uh, invited to many film festivals around the world, and it got it to be released as a package in many countries, that was a bit unexpected for all those involved, because that was not the, the intent behind the making of this film especially because psychological horror was not a mainstream genre in Japanese animation and there was no precedent for it at the time. So normally something like this would have just been flat out rejected. So I don't know what was going on at the time to make this last minute decision to be like, oh, wait, no, we need to make this better or I guess more expensive. I wonder if it was just the quality, like they recognize what they had. I I don't know, but as this was going on, like no one thought it was going to be a hit. So... 
I don't know. <laughs> but by the time Khan was offered the job, the title Perfect Blue and the content, which is a story about a B-class idol and a perverted fan, had already been set. But Khan hadn't read the original novel and only read the script for the film, which was said to be, well, he was told was as close to the original as it could have been. But in the original source material, there is no TV show within a movie, so there's no procedural that we're kind of getting the dual plot lines for, nor is there a motif of the blurring of blurring the boundary between dream and reality. The first plot was a simple splatter slash psycho horror story about an idol girl that's attacked by a perverted fan who cannot tolerate her image change, and there were a lot of depictions of bleeding. Well... The issue here, Khan doesn't like horror. He doesn't like blood and guts. He actually, like, I guess it's a good thing he didn't read the novel first because <laughs> he probably would have said no to this type of adaptation. But Khan said that if he were free to make a plan about this, he never would have thought of such a setting because he thought the horror genre was overused, having already been dealt with in various works such as Seven, Basic Instinct, and Science of the Lambs, and he believed that this was something the anime was not good at conveying. Um, but again, I don't know if that's his actual opinion or if it's just a personal bias. Right. Um, since most of the works in that genre pursue how perverted or crazy the murderers are, Khan decided to focus on how the inner world of the protagonist, the victim, is broken by being targeted by the stalker in order to outsmart the audience. But on the other hand, the TV show within the movie, which is called Double Blind, is more like a parody than a straight psycho horror film, and he made that with the intention of criticizing Japanese TV dramas that are easily made by imitating Hollywood fads immediately. Yeah, that's interesting because they they really go into it. Like when you see the double blind sequences, you're kind of like, oh, we've seen this a million times before. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's, I, I, I would almost view it more as almost more of a satire than a parody, right? Because parody, I feel like that we're taking specific scenes from specific properties. Although mm. we get some skin suit, lady skin suit shit in here. So maybe they are kind of parodying Sounds of the Lambs. I mean, I wouldn't use either of those words because that implies comedy, and I don't find that Perfect Blue is intentionally funny at all. I would mm -hmm. say that it is commentary. Right. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, still, Perfect Blue can essentially be described as a psychological horror film, but nevertheless, Khan decided to come aboard because he couldn't resist the allure of directing for the first time. And the author of the original work allowed him to change the story as much as he wanted, as long as he kept three things in mind to make the film work. And that was just the main character is a B-grade idol. She has a rabid fan slash stalker. And it is, at its core, still a horror film. That's it. He could have done anything else with this movie that he wanted. <laughs> so that's a lot of wiggle room. Yeah. So he took some elements from the original work, such as the uniquely Japanese existence of idols, which, okay, Jenny... What? <laughs> like, are, are idols a uniquely Japanese thing? Yes, in the way that this film is, it is completely unique and different than uh, a pop star in America, per se. They have, like, when they say B-grade idol, like, a lot of supergroups, like, will go and tour around Japan, and they'll have, like, smaller fan bases, but still be minorly successful, and you don't get that as often in America. Mm-hmm with the pop sphere it's similar but very different like kind of think of it more as a machine like an insane mm -hmm. machine in japan south korea does the same thing uh, and they mirrored their industry off of japan's actually so it's like more of a it's a mecha industry that is still unbroken or unbreakable 
Mm-hmm. Whereas in the you know the music industry in America, the the pop star industry in America, it's more broken. But also, I would say that in a Japanese idol can do more than just like singing and dancing. They tend to like be a model as well or an actress. And this film kind of uh, dives into a lot of the aspects of that and how they kind of flow between mm-hmm. basically just a pop culture stardom. Mm-hmm. In my research, what seemed to come around too is like, it's not even necessarily about talent. It's about like grooming a person to be a perfect specimen for consumption by the masses. Like I found some slightly, I don't want to say derogatory, but it seems slightly dismissive North American reviews of people being like, they don't even have to have that much talent because the way that they're packaged and promoted and then trotted out they become this kind of insatiable product for consumers to eat up and it just feeds the fad. Well, it almost, yeah. I mean, and you tell me if I'm off base here, but it almost kind of sounds like the old Hollywood system where we would have, you know, studios that quote unquote owned actors and actresses and would like contract them to their films and kind of treat them as property. That's exactly it. Okay. Well, I think it's like that, but also like you were saying, Jenny, it's like they're they're a jack of all trades. So it's not like we're just getting an actor or a singer. It's like these people will be able to do whatever you need them to do. And they usually introduce them through music and then they tend mm-hmm. to grow in other areas, whether it be TV, whether it be film, whether it be modeling, whether it just be like general stardom. So what you're saying is Mamania should have been prepared for for Mima to go off and do other things. <laughs> uh but that's also the thing is that fans are still crazy and they don't like when people deviate or right. change because people have and that's what the film at its core is kind of saying is that all of these fans think that they own their pop mm-hmm. idol and can dictate what they do. And especially women. Yes. (laughs) Well, okay. So the idols was a big thing they wanted to keep. Um, The otaku fans that surround them and the stalkers that have become more radical and came up with as many ideas as possible with scriptwriter Sadayuki Murai um, with the intention of using them to create a completely new story. And rewinding a bit to otaku. So again, Joe, you mentioned this off the top and I just mentioned it again. This was not a term that I was familiar with. So... As you both know, uh, this is a Japanese word that describes people with consuming interests, particularly in anime, manga, video games, or computers. But the interesting thing that I found out was it may also be used as a pejorative term with its negativity stemming from a stereotypical view of otaku as social outcasts and the media's reporting on one Sutomu Miyazaki, who is dubbed the otaku murderer in 1989. And... He was a serial killer, basically. Um, mm. But the term is less offensive today, but around the time Perfect Blue came out, it was still a bit dicey of its usage. I mean, it strikes me, and Jenny, correct me if I'm off base with this, but it feels like the way we use the word incel in North America now. Oh, that's very interesting. Um... It's not quite like these people feel like they deserve sex, which is the kind of primary definition of an incel, but the visual image that we associate with the two terms where it's like withdrawn boys who are not as socially equipped to handle interactions with women, but feel like they have a sense of ownership over them. I think that's what it used to kind of be a similar term, but I think now it's more socially acceptable. Right. It's like a stan. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Yeah. So it it turned from kind of, I think what Joe was saying, incel, but then it kind of morphed into 
Stan. It, it just it's a very good example of how slang terms change mm-hmm. over time. Right. Mm. Well, the film still needed a core motif, so Khan came up with the motif of two things that should have a borderline, such as dream and reality, memory and fact, and oneself and others, uh, becoming borderless and blending together. And if that sounded like word salad to y'all, yes, <laughs> it is. <laughs> Um, in the meantime, and try to follow me on this, uh, Khan came up with the idea that Mima's idol character is quote-unquote the past me, and this quote-unquote other me that should have existed only on the internet has materialized due to external factors, you know, the consciousness of the fans who want the protagonist to be a certain way, and internal factors, the protagonist's regret that she might have been more comfortable as her past self, and we will be diving into that a lot more once we get into the plot. Mm-hmm. But then the composition that the character and the protagonist herself confronted emerged. So once he had that idea down, it was only then that he became convinced that this work could be established as his own video work. So he decided to interpret the original story above as a story about an idol girl who broke down by a sudden change in her environment um, with the addition of that stalker. But he wrote a completely new script with Mirai. And initially, Mirai wrote the first draft of the script, and Khan would add or remove ideas from it as they were kind of going through it. They spent a lot of time discussing it. Many of the ideas came out of that. But then Khan wrote all the storyboards, where he also made changes to dialogue and other elements. Um, The drawing work was also carried out in parallel while they were doing this, which seems like a time saver, but also counterproductive if they decided to change things. (laughs) Trace, do you have a sense of what the timeline looks like? Like, how long did all of this take them? I mean, if the, the beginning of this production history was in 1994, and the film would eventually have its world premiere at Fantasia uh, in 97. So, hmm. I mean, it's it's within a three-year time gap. Wow. Okay. That seems speedy. Yeah. Yeah. When you think about it, though, as Jenny said, this was meant to be, you know, the, the video format, which would have been speedy. It just became the the theatrically released film in the last right. minute. Yeah. So the company that purchased the videogram and television rights to Perfect Blue before it was completed uh, advised the distributor to submit the film to Fantasia um, in Montreal, uh, Canada, so that it could be released overseas first and gain word of mouth. Um, since this was his first film, Khan was still unknown, so the distributor introduced the film as the first directorial effort of a disciple of Katsuhiro Otomo, the creator of Akira, hmm. instead of just naming him. <laughs> <laughs> Rude. Um, and Atomo was actually credited as a planning collaborator, although he never had any direct involvement with the film. Um, there's a rumor that he like, someone talked to him about it and they said, he said like one word or one piece of advice about it. And that was enough to get his credit on here. Oh gosh. That sounds like Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or Wes Craven Presents Anything. <laughs> So, Perfect Blue did screen at the Fantasia International Film Festival on August 5th, 1997, and it was so well-received that a second screening was hurriedly arranged for those who could not see it, and it was eventually voted by the audience as the best international film that year. So, thanks to that, the distributor began to receive invitations from more than 50 film festivals, including festivals in Germany, Sweden, Australia, and South Korea. They began negotiations with distributors in various European countries, and eventually succeeded in selling the film in major markets like Spain, France, Italy, uh, Britain, and Germany, um, prior to its release in Japan. (laughs) Wow. They just really waited until the end to bring it home. 
Yep. And of course, yeah, we have the whole Darren Aronofsky thing. Um, but he said in a magazine in 01 that he had to abandon the purchase of the rights, but he had worked in an homage to Perfect Blue in his film Requiem for a Dream. I think the big one's the bathtub shot, which mm-hmm. is there, but he uh, he has apparently sprinkled in many more visual homages in that film and possibly others of his films. Um, I mean, the ongoing battle is that Black Swan is basically a remake of Perfect Blue, and even though he lost the rights, and it is, at its core, a different story, and obviously adapted from the ballet as well. It's (laughs) just, it's very touchy among Perfect Blue fans. Right. (laughs) Well, he he denies it. He says that- Of course he does, because legally he has (laughs) to. Because he'd have to pay for it if he didn't. Uh, I mean, there is no, there's no killer in Black Swan. Oh, oh Trace. <laughs> Come I on, mean... man. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just, it's not one, it's not a one-to-one, comp- I, I I see the influence. Like, obviously you have like the, the themes I think are there, they carry over, but like the plot itself is not the exact same thing. I mean, there are articles written a year <laughs> ago that still are like, oh, let's list everything that is similar between Perfect Blue and Black Swan and screenshot by screenshot. And it's it's just sus. It's very <laughs> sus. That <laughs> to me, and I like Black Swan a lot. And yeah, I don't oh, think sure. it discredits the movie at all, actually. I, I just think it's like... <sighs> Aronofsky, I know you legally can't say it, but damn. Right. It's more like, <laughs> come on, dude. Convenient that up. he's passed away and can't say that's my movie. That's, well, yeah. that, whenever Aronofsky dies, he's going to leave a note. It, it, it's, what is it called? Like when you set a, a set, set an email to send, like when you're, when, after you die, it's going to like just send a mass press release to all the, everyone. It's like, hey, by the way, Black Swan was perfect blue, suckers. Gosh. But yeah, anyway, so Perfect Blue had its general release in Japan on February 28th, 1998, and a live-action film adaptation was actually made and released in 2002, but from everything I've read about it, apparently it's really bad. Jenny, have you seen that one? <laughs> no. I've also <laughs> read that it is, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's called Perfect Blue Yume Nara Samate. God, I hope I didn't butcher that. But I don't think it got an American release, probably because it was so bad. Um, actually, there's a lot of reasons why Japanese movies do not get American releases, and usually it has to do with the distributor. Oh, well, there you go. That's, I, I couldn't find the distributor's name for Perfect Blue, so everything I'm reading is like, the distributor did this, the distributor did that, but they wouldn't name the distributor. <laughs> it's probably because they don't exist anymore. Oh my god. Entirely possible. <laughs> the perils of international films, right? <sighs> Well, luckily, critical response was positive. Uh, we've got an 80% of Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 7.2 out of 10. Uh, we got a 67 out of 100 on Metacritic, but Letterboxd users, bless them, have awarded it an 8.8 out of 10, which is That's probably one of the like highest it. Letterboxd scores we've had. Yeah. It's gotten a bunch of awards and accolades, and uh, I could list them out, but the one that stuck out to me the most was that Slash Film named this the scariest animated film ever. Hmm. Which I think, if you have not seen this yet, I would not hold on to that. <laughs> Wait, you... What? Sorry, if you have not seen this, I wouldn't, I wouldn't walk into it uh, with that in mind. Because I think if you walk in thinking it's going to be the scariest animated film you've ever seen, you're going to be disappointed. Ah, uh, yeah. I haven't seen enough horror anime to know how this ranks. I mean... I think this is a great psychological thriller, but mm-hmm. yeah, if you go in expecting a, a slash and dash or something, it's probably not going to meet your expectations. Yeah, yeah, I, that's what I would say. But 
Anyway, um, that's that, that that's it. That's perfect blue. So, what's it about, Joe? <laughs> All right. So I'm going to be drawing on a master's thesis from Melanie St. Oyon called Queering Animation, the Animated Aesthetics of Queerness in the Works of Satoshi Khan. So uh, keep an ear out for her as we go along. But uh, we begin at an underwhelming live performance by a Power Rangers-esque group. <laughs> And it's partially underwhelming because they just don't have a lot of energy, but mostly because everyone in the crowd, which is entirely composed of men, is waiting for the teen girl pop group Cham to come on stage. So this performance is intercut with a discussion of main girl Mima, who is voiced by Junko Iwa, and they're talking about her potential as an actress. So they're thinking about uh, turning her into an idol. And then... Almost immediately, this fight erupts in the crowd because Mima is announcing her departure from the group, but also there's a group of people in the crowd who aren't taking the performance seriously. Like, they're there just to throw shit at the girls on stage. <laughs> this is wild, too. This is a rambunctious audience. Um, yeah, yeah. Although I will say, though, I love the song that Cham plays. I think this is a really fun pop song. Oh, sure. I mean, there's a reason they make it on the charts, Tris. <laughs> but 85th, right? <laughs> but they've never been on the charts before. <laughs> Are you a big K-pop fan, Jenny? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I even ask. No hesitation. <laughs> oh, I guess uh, this isn't K-pop. I guess it's J-pop, but sorry. <laughs> I also used to be a huge J-pop fan. Uh, but I, I with K-pop as well, I tend to not get into the new stuff as often and i think i get into more of newer k-pop bands than i ever do with newer j-pop bands i like a lot of japanese indie music a lot more interesting i have no i could not tell you like the distinction between the two but that is fascinating do you know jenny is there a distinction between j-pop and k-pop i mean yes one is in korea and the other what? one's in japan <laughs> I guess I meant more so in the style of music. Like, like, why, why do you gravitate oh. more towards K-pop than you do J-pop? Oh, okay. Um, yeah, so I think K-pop took exactly what J-pop was doing and has just perfected it. Mm. Like, to an insane degree, where I think that the uh, product <laughs> they come out with more often is more honestly well done these days. Okay. And I think that a lot of the old J-pop stars are, I, I think they're very good and they paved the way for mm. a lot of like K-pop stardom. But I, I think that at the end of the day, K the K-pop machine is just more insane than the J-pop machine now. Interesting. Okay. I love it when the, the up and comer usurps the original. Ah. <laughs> I, I will say, I think that this is a bit of a confronting opening sequence because you are just thrown into this. Like, we don't know who the main character is. We don't know that we're supposed to care for Mima. We don't know if these boys are going to be the primary antagonist. It's just like, hey, you're at a live show. Enjoy the music. <laughs> So she does eventually sing a farewell song, and this is observed by a differently drawn character. He's got sort of hooded eyes. He looks more withdrawn. He looks more menacing right from the jump. Oh, yeah. His face is nasty looking. It's, <laughs> it's, it's frankly scary. Yeah. Y'all are going to laugh. There's, um, because I, I, I mentioned the chipmunk adventure on this podcast before, but there's mm -hmm. uh, the male villain in that movie 
has this man's face. It is bizarre. And granted, Channel Adventure came out 10 years before, and I checked to be like, oh, is it the same animation company? No, hmm. they just look very similar. <laughs> I wonder if it's a visual shortcut to kind of be like, hey, people will immediately recognize that this is a villain. Like, we just have to draw them in a particular way, and that will connote this person is untrustworthy, this person's going to do bad things. Maybe. Yeah, like a stock character outline for villain, for male villains. Right, yeah. I mean, want to talk about incels. His face, like, yeah. poster child incel face when I think about it anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just really, it's unsettling and it looks completely distinct from nearly every other character we're going to see. Even though you could argue there are no good men in this movie. His eyes, though, like, does he even have irises and pupils? I feel like his eyes are always just like a so. white. No. Ugh. Yeah. And that, that really adds to the creep factor of this character. Mm-hmm. So this character is Mamania, who uh, I don't even know that we really ever name him so much as we just discover it over the course of the film. And he is voiced by Masaki Okura. So he's watching this performance and he's all eyes on Mima. And while this is all happening, we're also transitioning or we're intercutting between scenes of her like taking the train ride home, going to her cramped apartment. And it's really interesting because it recontextualizes the film like this isn't about an idol. This is about a girl who is also an idol. So we're really focusing on this interiority of her life and the the sort of push pull between her two worlds. Yeah, actually, I think that's a really good way of saying it, because I I think that that's also how you kind of realize that she is a girl who wants to be the best idol she can be and the most popular idol. And that's why she goes down this really horrible journey and Mm -hmm. says yes to a lot of things she doesn't want to do, which you'll get into, uh, (laughs) because she wants to be more popular and more successful at the end of the day. Right. What's interesting is that we almost never really hear her say that. Like, we hear other people decide that for her, and she goes along with it, because I think you're right, Jenny. It's like, we infer it's what she actually wants, or that she's willing to accept the advice of others who will take her that way. But it's weird that the film never has her verbalize it. If anything, there's a specific line when she says, like, of course I didn't want to do it, but I felt like I had to. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that could also be a critique on the machine of it all, where she oh, was yeah. probably picked when she was very young, probably mm-hmm. like high school level, definitely teenager, and then they groomed her into this person that they want her to be. And I think you see that also in the um, TV show, which you'll get into, where yeah. I'm sure she was also picked up on the street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. So Mima opens her fan mail when she gets home and will will address what she discovers in the mail in a little bit. But she's also fielding a phone call from her unsupportive mother who is unhappy with her decision to transition away from music and into more of that traditional sort of acting versatile kind of roles. So she draws a bath and then she gets a fax because we're in the 90s. Yes. <laughs> Love it. So Love it. good. Getting the facts. <laughs> yeah. And of course, we just hold on it as this page comes through the facts, right? And it's just the word traitor written a bunch of times. And the threatening handwriting is very clear. And you're just like, oh, okay. Well, this is this is why celebrities do not give out their personal numbers. God. <laughs> it's worse today. Right. Yeah. 
<sighs> um, so as she's looking at this fact, she says the words, who are you? Which is a sort of repeated refrain throughout the film. And the camera like pulls back into this gorgeous, extreme long shot of her isolated in the city in this small, cramped little apartment. And it just keeps repeating. And you're like, ooh, twisty. Okay, the mystery has begun. And then the line repeats. And it turns out, oh, this is just her single line of dialogue from the set of this somewhat trashy looking psycho thriller double bind i could not believe it. Like, she's gonna go and be an actress like, okay cool she's like a lead role in something no, no. she's <laughs> a glorified extra i mean like mm-hmm. she i guess she, she gets her well not sag car because it's japan but like she gets one spoken line like what the fuck is this like that's a risk for your career lady yeah it doesn't even seem like they knew if she had the capacity to act and kind of like what you were saying, Jenny, it almost seems like it doesn't matter, right? They would have just made it work right. and she would have transitioned into it regardless. But this does seem like a big risk. I mean, yeah, it is a big risk, but it's all part of the the machine. Well, but I guess, okay, so yeah, so we have this machine, like... I'm calling it a business, even though it's always a business. But it's like, mm-hmm. if if she would not have been successful in her acting career, is it not possible for her just to go back to Cham? Okay, that's actually a very good and layered question. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Do people because, ever come back? Yeah. Uh, sometimes, but sometimes they don't because once they leave, the fans get mad. Right. And even more mad when they come back because then... They've essentially failed at whatever they're trying to do, and they feel more entitled, more correct, that they should have never left. And then it's like this like weird circle of toxic fandom that a lot of like both J-pop and K-pop have equally. It's pretty right. disgusting, some of the fans that they mm. have. I mean, but that happens with anything. Yeah. Look at sports. <laughs> It's so funny, right? I mean, I, I've seen a lot of North American reviews of this movie that I think try to recontextualize it. Like the people who know what was going on in Japan are very familiar. Like this feels quintessentially mid 90s Japan, like what was happening with their idol scene, but even just like consumerism in general, like people as commodities and they were fads and we would do image change and we would just sell them and brand them and people would gobble it up. And then you see people in North America being like, oh, wow, this feels so reminiscent of like what happened with Destiny's Child and how, you know, Beyonce went off on her own and people just wouldn't forgive her for the way she treated the others. And you're just like, no, like I can see the comparisons, but this is also very culturally distinct. Yeah, I think that that's how someone will contextualize something from what they understand. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot of cultural distinction and i mean but fandom across the globe it's all the same like i I mentioned sports is a really good example like if someone leaves a team and then comes back people aren't happy when they come back because it's Mm -hmm. there's a toxicity to it where they're like oh well you left us and we were mad and now you're back and we're even more mad yeah that sense of ownership (laughs) damn it it's double traitor yeah It's like, oh, you weren't successful there? Oh, now you want to come back? Kind of thing. Joe, shortly after this, this is when we get, they're talking about the plot of the police procedural. And this is when, oh, is it Ari? Ari, yeah. Ari. She's talking about, oh, I'm sorry, in character while they're shooting, is talking mm-hmm. about how the killer is uh, skinning the victims and making a wom- a suit. Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in some ways, this doesn't seem like a bad fit for Mima. Like, she's not being asked to do too much. It looks 
you know, from a North American perspective, I was like, oh, it's basically Law and Order SVU mm-hmm. kind of equivalent. But it's lurid enough and trashy enough that it really works within this kind of psychodrama that Mima is going to find herself in. And I love, I just love the fact that this show is called Double Bind because it's like, could we get a little more meta with this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I really like the title of the show. <laughs> like, I would watch Double Bind, the TV show. 100%. I, mean, yeah. I feel like if it was an American show, it would be on CBS. But yes, absolutely. Sure. Maybe like a hard NBC at like 10 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're also at this point introduced to Mima's manager, Rumi, who is voiced by Rika Matsumoto. And Trace, I believe you recognize this voice. Oh, thank you for the cue, Joe. Everyone, this <laughs> actress is the voice of Satoshi, a.k.a. Ash Ketchum, in the Japanese version of the Pokemon anime. And she has been the voice of Satoshi since the beginning, since the beginning of Pokemon. <laughs> the beginning of time. <gasps> oh, okay, man. So, Trace, I am curious. Did you recognize her voice? Because I assume you watched the English oh, version yeah, of no, Pokemon. Oh, yeah, no, I don't watch the Japanese edit. Oh, okay. I was just, I was curious. I was like, that would be really impressive to me, personally. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, unfortunately, um, I mean, I, I don't even know if the Japanese edits. So, actually, that's a lie. I have watched a few Japanese uh, episodes of Pokemon because they were banned uh, in the oh. States. And uh, they, they were only released in Japan. So there's one where, like, you know, uh, there's someone points a gun at Ash Ketchum in the first season oh that couldn't God. come into the state. So they never even dubbed it. So you had to bootleg They're it online. guns at Ash? Yeah, they went to an <laughs> island. It's 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 really actually kind of funny because there is continuity in Pokemon. And in this particular episode, he catches 30 Tauros because it's at the safari park. And so this episode never aired. <laughs> and all so of a sudden, like, Ash has 30 Tauros. <laughs> And also the continuity does last across all 20 years of the uh, anime. So he still has those 30 Tauros that we never got to see in the States. <laughs> wow. But um, but yes, yeah, sorry. Same voice. And I thought that was very delightful. Nice. Okay. That is fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So Rumi tells Mima, basically, she's involved in all aspects of her life. It seems like a very close mother-daughter kind of relationship. And Mima is interested in this fan letter that she has received because she doesn't understand what the hell Mima's room is. And because, once again, folks, this is the mid to late 90s, we are told oh, it's an internet website. You just need to log on using a computer. And we get to watch the scene as Mima goes, oh, I thought this was going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> I love every time in the 90s and early 2000s, people go on the internet, especially mm-hmm. any Japanese movie that deals with the internet because it is just very amusing to me but also every english movie that deals with the internet they're like http (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is too funny she's really proud of herself though oh 
Oh, sure. She should be. I mean, don't you two remember the first time you kind of went on the internet and realized, oh, wow, there's like this whole other weird world that just exists. I did love the Apple logo that was featured prominently over all of this stuff. Oh, I fucking had that computer. That was my family computer when I was growing up. It what? looked exactly like this one. The Macintosh Performa? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Wow. I never even heard of it. <laughs> Old school baby. Yes. I don't even know. I, yeah, I think ours could get on the internet. It was dial-up slow as oh, yeah. fuck. But it's like you had to have it plugged into the internet because wireless, like wireless internet was not a thing. Honestly... It is such a chore to remember what we did back then to get on the internet. She's right. It is mm-hmm. hard. <laughs> it is hard. It takes a long time. <laughs> like, she doesn't even know how to navigate properly, right? It just really made it hard when you were a kid. Well, mm-hmm. when you discovered porn as a kid, and so you would, like, you know, as a kid, oh my god, as a teenager, um, and you would go, like, sneak into the family computer at night, but oh no, you can't do that because the fucking dial-up sound woke up the entire family. Mm-hmm. Trace, mm-hmm. is this a personal experience? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> Jenny, it's a universal experience. Get well, on the train. Because bear in mind, I'm not just watching porn, I'm watching gay porn before I'm out. So it's really like, I'm like, oh my God, I, I was really good at clearing all the history, doing. closing all the windows. <laughs> oh, say I did not know how to clear the history, but also it was the sweatiest enterprise because you were just sweating bullets. Like, how long do I have? This image needs to download faster in case someone comes around the corner or comes down the stairs and they're going to get a clear glimpse of what is on this screen right now (laughs) double bind i could never log into the internet with my parents asleep they would have yelled at me (laughs) so i just didn't try i was like (laughs) oh no because the computer was right by their bedroom there was no way (laughs) see yeah mine mine was upstairs but it was like on like it was like open like right by the, the the banister that led to just the living room downstairs so it would like echo throughout the entire house Of course, that's how they got you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) internet aside. (laughs) Internet aside. So what what Mima discovers is when she navigates to this website, Mima's room, she discovers that it's an entire website dedicated to her, but it includes weird things like a diary. And the diary is written first person, and it is beat for beat what she does during the day. Like someone has very close access to her, has been following her, aka has been stalking her. Yeah, they even know which foot she used to, like, get off the train. That is wild. The just minute observations that this person has of every little thing she does is really scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it, that's the thing. is like, because we did just see her doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Oh, yeah, this movie loves to do repetition. So it's like if you're paying attention, you will see the same things happening and you realize, oh, is it just because she's in this machine in this rut, right, where people could follow her every move or they would be able to to find out where she was going to be and what she was going to be doing. But also it's because someone is so close to her that they can see all of this. Happening. Well, and that's the thing. So, I mean, like, I know I just said earlier, this isn't like the scariest animated film ever, whatever. But what makes this so scary to me, because we've seen stalkers like, you know, reach out to their, their victims and like, you know, say, oh, I saw you doing this. But it's another thing to have them pretend to be you and mm-hmm. posting your day to day activities on a website acting as if you made it. Right. (laughs) Especially as you start to lose your own mental faculties. Like the scene where she says, oh, I guess I was at that show because she herself can't remember. But the diary says so. She's like, okay. (laughs) 
Okay, so she goes back to mentally preparing her single line of dialogue for Double Bind, and her vision is is distorting a little bit. Like, she's upset. She's starting to come undone. So just as she's about to film, a letter bomb that is addressed to her explodes in the face of her agent, Mr. Tadakoro, and he is voiced by Shinpachi Suji. I love Japanese films. <laughs> You're like, no one's questioning that, and I'm going to move on. <laughs> yep, yep, we're just going to keep going. Okay, so at home, Rumi reassures Mima that this explosion is just a prank. And we could almost believe it because that opening scene showed that there are people who think that she's a joke, they don't take her seriously, they don't really care about her as an artist. So you think, yeah, if somebody didn't like her, didn't take her seriously, they might do something petty like this. And it's not as though he died. So it's kind of okay. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So this is actually when we do get more information about Mima's room and the diary mm -hmm. entries and that kind of stuff. So we're, we're really getting a sense, okay, somebody is stalking her and we just keep repeating her line as she prepares <laughs> for the show. She's trying real hard to nail every bit of this line. Mm -hmm. Well, she's got to sell it, right? It's the only line she has. <laughs> and for now, this is her entire career. Yep. It's on the line. Yep. We, on the line, get it? <laughs> oh, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a throwaway line that Rumi herself is a former pop idol, and she questions whether or not all of this work is worth it. Like, wouldn't it have just been easier to keep Mima as a pop idol instead of trying to transition her over into acting? So you very much get a sense that Rumi maybe wasn't on board with this career decision or it's not one that she herself made, because obviously she ended up becoming an agent to a pop idol. Yeah, yeah. We also learn that Cham is doing quite well without Mima. So they're on the charts for the first time, and some of her fans don't seem to have a very high esteem of Double Bind as a TV show. So there's a lot of questions about whether or not she made the right decision. See, okay, I actually thought this was a flashback to them charting when she was there, and she was using it as like a, oh, like, I was successful when I was there, but that actually makes more sense than what, no. what you're saying. <laughs> happens so often where someone leaves and like the fans of her are gonna are gonna be like oh well that won't do as well without her and then they somehow do better and they keep going and it doesn't matter because <laughs> at the end of the day it doesn't matter if you're in it it just matters if your song is catchy enough well maybe it's like a personal vendetta they're like hey everyone let's make them really popular after she leaves to make her feel really shitty about leaving the band um no <laughs> <laughs> maybe not so I did want to elaborate a little bit. I, I introduced another term off the top called kawaii, and that is part of the idol culture. So this uh, refers to performers who are basically made to maintain a certain idealized hyperfeminine image of innocence. And the direct translation... It's cute. Yes, it means pitiful and cute. And the oh. example that I read was Hello Kitty because she can't walk, she can't talk, and she needs to be taken care of, but she's extremely cute. I, I, okay, that's interesting. Most people just use it for cute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I had never seen the pitiful before because I was like, that's interesting. oh, there's a, there's a connotation to that. I mean, like baby. Right. I, I would say like maybe like baby and cute. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So at the end of the day, part of this is like, this is what Mima is expected to adhere to. And if she steps out of that line by, say, doing some more provocative things later on in the film, <laughs> people are far more likely to turn against her because she's not adhering to these codes that people have created artificially for her. Yes, because as we know, in uh, all culture, uh, women have to be sexy, but sexless. They can't yes. have sex. And if they start having sex, they're no longer interesting to a certain type of person. That is mm-hmm. so... <laughs> I mean, you're right. Like That, that, that has been the, the cultural mindset for so long, but it's so fucked. <laughs> yeah, it really I saw- is. I saw a piece from former guest Princess Weeks on the Mary Sue talking about how when she watched this film, she immediately thought about the kind of transition from child celebrity on like the Disney Channel into pop princess of like Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, Miley Cyrus, and so Mm. on. And just like how they have to rebel, but also we want them to be sexy and we give them all this attention, but then we also call them sluts and whores and, you know, they're biting the hand that fed them by going against Disney and other corporations and so on. And I was like, okay, that to me tracks a little bit more closely. Mm -hmm. I think Disney is actually a very good one-to-one comparison for J-pop almost. Like the Disney um, machine. Right. And the way that they pick up people at malls. It's pretty similar. Just like... (laughs) If, if it was a single person and not a corporate entity, it's like, I went to the mall and I found a young girl so that I could turn her into something that I wanted. You're like, no, that actually makes you a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. Okay, so Mima is thinking about all of this pressure, and also she's still thinking about these diary entries, which are very unnerving. She ends up having a panic attack as she's getting off the train because she realizes she's using the exact same foot that she read about on the internet. And she's also dodging paparazzi who want to take her picture. And when she gets into the elevator, she sees that there's a newspaper blurb about one of the guys who heckled her at that opening show who has been hit by a car. And it's just randomly in the elevator as though this person knew where she was going to be and wanted to be like, hey, I took care of somebody for you. Creepy. So in Rumi's office, Mima overhears that Cham is doing really well, and they're in this other room celebrating their success, and you think, ah, shit, she has made the wrong decision. Right. But then she also learns, oh, you know, the agent and the manager are going to fight for her to get more screen time on Doublebind, so she's actually, she's doing okay. It's just her celebration is not in sync with what's happening with Cham anymore. Right. So she gets harassed on the street by someone who proposes that she model. So, Jenny, that was helpful information to know that this actually would be considered part of the traditional idol trajectory. But this dude is creepy and we don't like him. But this is actually just another double bind scene because the movie (laughs) loves to fucking play with what we're seeing and reveal it to be, nope, this is artificial. This is manufactured. This is not real. So this one always works for me. I always forget about it. And I'm like, right. Okay. Yep. This is all part of what she's doing on the show. Mm -hmm, Mm hmm. Of course, she is also being simultaneously videotaped by Mamania, who is in the crowd doing that super stalkery creepy shit it's very peeping tom almost too right Mm -hmm. yeah oh yeah totally yeah so i'm gonna bring back saint oyant uh for this so 
part of her reading of this movie and Khan's kind of whole oeuvre is that he's fond of queering up traditional spaces. And hmm. in this case, we're actually talking about like queer as non-normative or different from traditional. So St. Toya says, if we understand conventional codes and normative structures as being coherent or in line, then we can argue that Khan uses incoherence or disorientation as an artistic mm. strategy to queer and critique the subjects of his films. So queerness in this sense relies on play and transformation. To be queer is to live in these threshold spaces hidden or unseen part of multiple ways of being and Khan's strategic use of disorientation in this film acts as a critique against heteronormative gender expectations and Ooh. repressive gender roles in cinema and entertainment huh. yeah i mean paprika is very yeah I, I would say that's fairly spot on jenny would you say that is he a filmmaker who's interested in female celebrity and stardom Yes. I mean, Paprika doesn't deal with stardom, though, if okay. I remember that correctly. Um, I, yeah, I think it's just a normal woman who's going to therapy because she has like these dream episodes where she can enter into it's basically Inception. Oh, <laughs> um, <Okay. laughs> because Inception, that's another thing is Inception stole everything from Paprika. The, the, the cons fans, they do the most. Um <laughs> The biggest thing is I think Tokyo Godfathers doesn't really play with that kind of format that both Paprika, Perfect Blue, and uh, it's been forever since I've seen Millennium Actress, so okay. <laughs> I, I can't really comment on that one because I also don't like that one as much as the other three. Mm. Yeah, I've heard it's not as popular. He has a little bit of a trippy mindset and definitely plays with the uh, editing process, which is why a lot of film directors really admire him and why I think I think Nolan even mentioned at one point that Paprika, he has seen it. He's very familiar with it, mm. obviously, because he steals stuff from it. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I never find this movie to be confusing because, again, when you eventually every scene that's playing in, in the double vine, like it, it will reveal itself as just that. So you're only going to be maybe confused or thinking you're watching the actual plot of the film for a few seconds, really, before the, the movie shows its hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with both of those points. It's like double bind will reveal itself in time. And if anything, you're just meant to see, oh, it's like the difference between her fake acting life and her real life is really starting to blur and collapse. But also, it's such a, a fun, intuitive cinematic technique. Like this film really does feel it sounds stupid, but it feels less animated and almost more real life because I think it's edited and shot in the ways that we're used to in live action films. Well, and that's, I mean, that's why I look, by all accounts, that live action version is not a good movie, but I really am curious about it because I want to see how they chose. Well, and actually that's the other thing too. If it's an adaptation of the original source material and not right. an adaptation of this movie, it's going to be very different. Yeah, because I I love the narrative decisions that they made for this animated film. Like, I can't imagine a different version of this story because I think this story works so well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I actually, although you guys say that, I think that the only way this movie could be successful in the way that he is telling it is an animated form. Why do you say for that? For multiple reasons, but I, I think the flowiness of it and the dreamlike quality i think lends to animation a lot more than it does to live action i mean i mentioned inception earlier i think that's one of the very few movies that like 
brings the dreamlike quality to a live action film and actually makes it feel like a dream. Hmm. Oh, see, now I'm like racking my brain for movies that have like really, really, really good like dream worlds <laughs> outside of Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street's really good, mm-hmm. but it also is distinct. I think it's a little bit more distinct in when it's a dream, and it's yes. not as like Perfect Blue. It's almost hard to like yeah. decipher, especially towards the end. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. the movie tips its hand, as you said, Trace. But I think it's only because otherwise we wouldn't know. Like all the double bind sequences get me because there's no there's no visual difference yeah. between her real life and what we see of the show until we see the cameras or they call cut or she flubs a line or something like that and the editing is just so oh, smooth. so good yes yeah that it's like you just can't tell like you're like oh yeah this is, has to be real life and then all of a sudden you're like oh wait it's not shit mm-hmm. again got me again <laughs> got me Even again. like a, a movie a nightmare you kind of understand the tricks after a while right they also want you to know the tricks Mm -hmm. he doesn't well when joe and i were talking earlier today because i was like yeah this movie reminds me of a lot of different films but i was like i was like it's not lynchian but then joe you brought up mulholland drive and even though that came out Mm. after this movie i can see a lot of similarities in the way that the each of these films like progress in their narrative and how they how they relay the narrative yeah the the dream logic in both those films is it's so difficult to distinguish between, but it's purposely by design, right? And I think you you both hit on something that is distinct. Like a lot of films that use dreams want you to know that they're dreams. And it's just like, ooh, the dream is so scary or weird or it's surreal. And you're like, okay, but that isn't selling the kind of confusion that we feel when we're caught in between like waking and sleeping. And Well, and... This is a me thing, but typically I'm not a fan of dream sequences or nightmare sequences. I understand usually the point is that we're literally getting in the character's head, seeing mm-hmm. like what they are feeling and thinking and like what they're anxious about. I always, if it's not done well, though, I just see it as wasted yeah. narrative. Like this is screen time that could be used to push along the narrative as opposed for this more of an introspective thing. This movie does it very well, I think. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So... As we've talked about, Double Blind is starting to become a larger part of Mima's life, and that's thanks to Tadakora and Rumi, because they, well, one of them has signed off on a controversial rape storyline that will give Mima quite a bit more screen time, and Rumi is not on board for this. This isn't just a rape scene, this is a gang rape scene. Yeah, yeah. Which, I guess that's why we're throwing out the accused references in here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, folks, if you haven't watched this movie, once again, content warning. Because <laughs> this is not an easy rape scene to watch. But but it's not a, re- I mean, it's not a quote-unquote real rape scene. Oh. oh. <laughs> I, I disagree. I mean... I-, I think that this is not a sexually penetrative rape scene, but I absolutely think that this is a rape scene. Wait, Trace, are you saying it's not real in the context of the film, or you're saying it's not real, like it's animated and it's Oh, no, in the context of the film, it's not real. Because they are acting out a scene in the show. Right, but they imply that although she gave consent, she felt pressured into giving consent. Yeah, it's rape of a different kind. Okay, so the fact that she is having to simulate rape, even though it's against her consent, makes it a rape. I mean, it's an assault or harassment or however you want it's it is what it is Mm -hmm. (laughs) it still um affected her 
Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, we see that as she starts crying. <laughs> I, just, I guess, I mean, sorry, I'm not trying to downplay the impact of this scene on Mima, but more to so be like, th- this is a scene that's being, a rape scene that's being simulated slash acted in a television show as opposed to like Mima is dancing in a club and being raped by a bunch of men on the stage. Right. But I think what Khan is actually trying to show here is that there is no difference Mm -hmm. between acting Mm. and reality. And even though the man right before the act says, I'm sorry, (laughs) he still also grabs her and it's uncomfortable and he doesn't ask her if it's okay to grab her in a certain way. Like You don't know as a viewer, obviously, if what they said should be happening in that scene and what they practice, but it's still very uncomfortable to be in a scene and then be surprised by actions of men. Mm -hmm. Well, and so much of this movie is about male gaze, right? Like it's about how Mima is framed. Like whenever we see her in crowd shots or when we see Mamania looking at her, it's often through the lens of binoculars or his camera. And in this scene in particular, like the way that the rape scene is shot, we actually pause at one point so that they can reset. So we're keenly aware that this is a simulated, I'm using air quotes here, a simulated rape scene because she's not actually being quote unquote hurt, she's not actually being raped. And yet the reaction that she has, the way that Rumi yeah. reacts, but where she actually starts crying and has to leave the room, the way that we as viewers feel is incredibly triggering. This is so authentic that it mm-hmm. still feels like a rape. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And it makes us complicit in it too, right? Like, because Khan does that pause so that they can do the reset. So like, we are aware this is not real. And yet it is also incredibly upsetting. Yeah, no, I agree. And um, I I think it's also um, foreshadowing of a scene that happens towards the end Mm. and scenes that are perpetually happen throughout the film. A Mm -hmm. lot of movies break into this kind of um, treatment of women uh, and the sexism of, you know, uh, show business in general. Mm-hmm. But I think that this one does it possibly the best. And I also think they do it in the, the safest way because it is animated. So do you think that uh, the animation, like, uh, would you say it dilutes the impact then? No, I think it makes it more impactful because I think that the fact that it is animated. Mm-hmm. You're not actually thinking about the actual actress right. in the scene, um, which I think a lot of people do when they watch these scenes in films and feel uncomfortable. And I think this is the best way to explore that type of misogyny and uncomfortable feeling without it being an unsafe production. Right. Yeah, it's oh. interesting too. Like when when people talk about particularly male-directed rape revenge films, and I know that this isn't necessarily that, like this is a psycho thriller with a strong male gaze and female simulated rape. Um, right. Boy, was that me just trying to put up <laughs> context pieces all over the board. Um, I don't see people criticizing Khan for this rape sequence or the way that it's filmed, despite the fact that the film is interrogating the male gaze. And I... I do think that part of that is the animation allows us some of that critical distance. I mean, and I'm not going to say the scene is necessary, but I I think that, I mean, again, this is, well, yes, it is necessary. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's necessary for this film. 
Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, like we, we are dealing with a woman who is gradually losing her mind. And this is kind of the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? Like, like this is, yes. <laughs> well, it's, no, not, no. it's not just that, though. This isn't like, oh, this is the moment where her mind cracks. It's like, this is the most literal interpretation of all of the other things that are being done to mm. her in the name of advancing her career by all of the people who are purportedly fans of hers or looking out for her. Got it. Yeah, no, that much better put. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have also jumped over a very important moment, which is Mima's subway home after she kind of hears about this rape storyline coming to pass. You know, Rumi's like, we're not going to do it. This isn't right. And Mima's like, no, it's, it's fine. You know, I think we should proceed with it. And then on the subway home, this is the first time she sees what I'm going to call pop idol Mima. So this is a vision of herself dressed in her costume from the Cham days. And pop idol Mima looks at her in the subway window and says that she refuses to do this rape scene. So... This is the start of a psychotic break, but also it's kind of that thing that you said you don't like, Trace, about the dream sequences mm -hmm. where we are getting an idea of what is going through Mima's head, but it's because of her own projections. Yes. Yeah, but again, though, it is pushing the narrative forward in a way yes. that I don't find egregious, you know? Oh, no, I, I fucking love it. That's one of the reasons why I like this movie, because it's an unreliable female protagonist who may or may not be going mad spoiler alert it's both um yeah which is great <laughs> and i think that's why i like it because it is so seamless in the way that it does this all of these scenes with pop idol mima actually feel warranted and they do feel like they're advancing the narrative but also giving us insight into the character like all of these other movies that try to play at this don't do it as well as this movie well and let's bear in mind though that traditionally in horror films Dream sequences are used for cheap jump scares. And there's no... Yeah. Sure, you can argue, oh, it's supposed to show how the protagonist is being, like, scared. Or, no, 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 no. It is a filler buffer thing that is used in horror films. <laughs> and this mm -hmm. is not that. Yeah. So after we have seen this very difficult rape scene get filmed, she gets taken out to dinner by her agent, as though that's supposed to make everything okay. I know. He's like, I'll take you out to dinner as a treat, as like a. He you literally did it. says, you did it. as a treat. Because <laughs> you did. You got raped real well in that scene. Here you go. Here's a burger. Terrible. Yeah. This dude just really does not care about her. It is interesting how they shoot all the women in that scene or draw or yeah, whatever. Uh, mm -hmm. All the women, because like there's the one that's smoking the cigarette that's like the exec who like. Yeah stops smoking and just is like paralyzed and then there's also Rumi who you know is very uh disturbed by it mm -hmm. but uh also is going through her own stuff as we find out so uh interestingly enough after Mima gets home she sees that all of her fish have died so we've earlier gotten a hint that She's not the most present person in her apartment sometimes, so she mm. forgets to feed the fish on occasion. She's working. Yeah, because she's busy. She's not always there. But um, yes, apparently she has either been away long enough or she has not been Forgotten. paying attention and all of her fish have died. And as you said, Trace, this is the moment where she kind of has the breakdown. So she does have a, a tantrum. She takes down the poster on the wall and she once again sees pop idol Mima in the mirror 
And then we cut from this. So it's like, okay, we're taking away all the remnants of who I was as a pop idol, but she still shows up in the mirror. And then we immediately transition over to Mamania, and we see that he is like maybe living underground. He's got this little cubbyhole kind of apartment, and it is a shrine yeah, to her. It, it's the uh, Helga Pataki Arnold shrine. And hey, Arnold, like this is, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> It's terrifying. Like, when you see this, it's exactly what you expected of this character. He's just so gross in this movie. So to see what he's got, you're just, you're very worried for her. I'm sorry, I did want to point out, because one thing she said when she's having her breakdown, she says out loud, she's like, I didn't want to do the scene, yep. but I didn't want to disappoint anyone. Mm-hmm. Have y'all, Joe, maybe I've asked you this before, but I, and y'all, if you don't want to, but have y'all ever been in a situation that, was that could have been sexual and the person you know instigated and you didn't really want to but you kind of like i don't want to like make them mad so you went ahead and did it anyway uh yes yes me too i have as well um i've i don't consider that like i'm sorry for me personally sexual assault but it's a thing where it's like i didn't want to do this but i did it anyway Mm -hmm. well it it is in its own way Mm -hmm. when someone has power over you and pressure you into anything that is Assault or harassment, however you want to say it, mm-hmm. or power playing, it is not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is really complicated, right? And particularly as people have become increasingly more aware of their impact on other people and even just a turn of phrase, uh, letting people say no, even though they started off by saying yes. Like, I think we're all just so much more cognizant of it. And I think a lot of people try to overreact by saying like, oh, well, now I can't, now I can't even touch someone or compliment someone or hold the door open for them or else I'll get accused of this. And it's like, no, that's literally not what we're saying. We're saying that if you do something to try to produce a particular result that is going to make someone feel uncomfortable, or you know that you can leverage that like you were saying jenny if you have a power over someone like that is a form of abuse and people just need to be very cognizant of it well again speaking just for me personally it was never um but i never felt pressured but i have historically had issues with um confrontation uh which would Mm -hmm. include just telling like rejection or telling someone no so it wasn't even like oh they were pressuring me they really want to do it It was like oh they instigated it and i didn't want to have the confrontation of i don't want to do this uh so i just rolled with it you know yeah I mean, the problem is, is there's just so much shame that can get wrapped up into sexual encounters or Mm -hmm. power plays in general, right? So it doesn't sound like that person did anything wrong, but it sounds like you had issues where the relationship wasn't as clear, where you didn't feel like you could comfortably say no without, like disappointing yeah. someone shouldn't mean that you should have to have sex with them exactly and that's what i did for many years of my life <laughs> hey. sorry this isn't just one person by the way this is like a collection of like my slutty years <laughs> well i think there's a difference in saying saying yes and then still feeling okay mm-hmm. um and saying yes but somebody pressures you i think what con's trying to say specifically right. with perfect blue is that women in the industry don't have any um no agency yeah to say no and rumi actually does try to say no for her mm-hmm. but also there's 
different feelings underneath what why she wants to say no for her because yeah. both of them at the end of the day want to control her and what she wants to do and she doesn't have a say at all mm-hmm. she yeah. just has to agree with one or the other and how they see her yeah i i, I didn't mean this to be like i i am like linking oh, myself no, I, I, to mima i hear um, you yeah <laughs> it was more of a tangent like that, that that like like struck a memory in my brain no yeah that's yeah I hear you. <laughs> so I think what you're saying, Jenny, really comes to light in the following scene. So it's a it's a bit of a montage of Mima doing interviews as she gains more prominence on Doublebine. And we also see the reactions of the Ataku, you know, her quote unquote fans or people who were following her career. And they're talking about how the show isn't great or they just, you know, they don't think that her performance is all that good or they're wondering what she's doing with her career. But in all of these interviews, she basically has to sit there and talk about how the transition has been and how she's super grateful to have once been a part of the girl group. But, (laughs) you know, now she's really excited about this new thing. And you can see she's having to regurgitate these talking points that she probably didn't have any say in so that she comes off demure and feminine and innocent and all of these other things. All the things that a pop star and as a woman a woman a female pop star needs to be mm-hmm. yeah so interestingly enough uh that interior monologue and or this threatening hallucination pop idol mima calls her filthy she says that her reputation is tarnished and then in what will come to be her kind of trademark move she drops off the balcony and we just see this apparition hopping between streetlights as though she's just kind of jumping around for a bit of a stroll Mm -hmm. i love the animation of how this character moves in this so and this is the dreamlike aspect too which again but it's also very unsettling like it's 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 just it's childlike but also menacing Mm mm-hmm so we move into the double behind parking garage where we see screenwriter Shibuya, who is voiced by Yoku Shioya. There you go. Yeah, Shioya. Okay. And this character, so the screenwriter, uh, finds a ghetto blaster who is blaring Cham in an elevator. I'm, and then I'm, wait, we I'm, just I'm, cut I'm to the doors opening and he is dead and his eyes are gone. A ghetto blaster? Yeah. Is that is that a radio or a boombox? <laughs> Wait a minute. What? It's like, it's like a boombox. Is this a Canadian term? I have never heard this term before. You've never heard of a ghetto blaster? No. Hold on. No, I mean, I feel like maybe I have, but maybe I didn't connect what it was. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, it is the same thing as a boombox. Wait, hold on. Is this, is, is this a Canadian term? <laughs> Jenny and I are like, what? <laughs> what the? F- Sorry, I didn't realize this was going to di- disrupt everything. <laughs> Um, I mean, I wasn't going to say anything. I was just like vibing. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> I've never heard that term before. That is fun. I love it when this happens on the podcast. It, it's interesting. So I, we, I always said this is not a rape revenge scene. But in a way, Mamania is getting revenge on the screenwriter yes. for Mima's rape. 100%. Yeah. yeah I, I didn't even think about that. I actually really like that as a concept. Um, also, who boy, this poor guy uh, gets his eyes, gou- eyes gouged right out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 
violent and bloody. I love the the editing for this, just the transition between. You know something bad is going to happen to this character. It's an underground parking lot at night. (laughs) In a horror movie. (laughs) Yeah, so this dude's not getting out. But like, it is, it's just the right amount of gore and the right amount of editing to be like, you know what you saw, and then we move on. Um, but P.S. though, wouldn't an interesting concept for a movie be like someone going and doing like revenge, like, ki- like killing a bunch of screenwriters or directors of rape revenge films? Mm, oh, that grim. would be, that'd be a fun slash. Oh my God. If someone makes that movie, you owe me money. <laughs> <laughs> trademark. trademark, trademark, copyright, copyright, A24. <laughs> Are you listening? Uh, okay, so the other Cham girls, Rei, voiced by Shiho Niyama, and Yukio, who is voiced by Amiko Furukawa, they're preparing for this live performance, and um, they're talking shit about Mima. Like, it's interesting because I think in some ways they didn't mind her as a colleague but they're also doing that sort of petty girl shit where they're like, well, mm-hmm. now she's not a member of the group. And we hear she's doing a photo shoot with this man who is notoriously bad for getting women to take off their clothes. And does she take off her clothes a lot as the movie continues? Or, I'm sorry, oh does she get her clothes removed a lot as the movie continues? Yeah, so uh, we see the photo shoot with Murano, who is voiced by Masashi Abera. And... This isn't softcore. Like, I think at one point a character says, oh, you know, it's a softcore photo spread. And I was like, we're seeing everything here. <laughs> it's kind of pornography. I'm su- I was really shocked that Rumi would have let her do this, to be honest. Yeah, I was surprised to see this, but... I don't. I guess it goes to show that Rumi doesn't view this as uh, offensive as a, a, a non-consensual rape scene. Well, I do think it's important that we never see Rumi... Like, she's not present at this photo shoot, and we don't see her consent to it. Like, we're just here doing this. So I wonder, at this point, how much Mima is, like, consulting her for some of these things. Well, she's probably out, you know, filling out that Mima's Room website. (laughs) She's she's a little busy. She's a little preoccupied. (laughs) She's writing emails and filling up that diary. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Sending some faxes. (laughs) She's got to wait for the paper to go through. <laughs> oh my God. It takes a long time to write out Trader a dozen different ways on a single sheet of paper. <laughs> but she didn't even use the ma- magazine cutout. She just wrote the fucking thing. Yeah. Artistry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a true artist. <laughs> so while watching the Cham performance, Mamania envisions Mima singing along. And I think this is one of those moments where... It kind of throws you off the scent in terms of like red herrings because you think, oh, well, Mamania is also having visions. He's seeing Mima still contributing to Cham. So maybe what Mima is experiencing either is or isn't real. Like, I think this confuses the narrative in the right way. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So... Yes, we we also see that the diary corresponds to this event. And Mima is like, oh, I guess I was there. I don't know. I don't remember. But I'm seeing it here. And everything else in the diary has come to pass. So sure. (laughs) And then this nude photo spread comes out. And Momania loses his shit. He definitely buys all the copies. He fights other people who are trying to buy them. Can't taint the image of your pop star. 
Yes. And have people see her. And we have this man who is now trying to dictate how sexual a woman can be in her job. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> God. I mean, guy. yes, Trace. That's called every woman's existence ever. That there you go. <laughs> <laughs> we should also note that uh, Mamania is emailing with someone claiming to be the real Mima, and this person is suggesting that the other Mima, aka the one that we know and have been following, is an imposter, and that they will be dealt with. Yeah, this this on a first watch was a bit confusing to me because I didn't know if this was the voices in his head talking to him or mm-hmm. what was going on here. Yeah, yeah, I think that's kept deliberately vague so that you're not quite sure, is there actually someone else who is contributing to this, or is he also just losing his mind? I mean, I also, for quite, I mean, I, I'm sure this is the intention, I really, for quite a bit, thought we were getting, like, dissociative ideas, well, obviously, yes, because it's in the, the, the TV show within a show that we have dissociative identities for, but I really thought that's where we were going, and I love the fact that the movie just, like, pulls the rug out from under you on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... We get a couple more scenes from Double Bind, and we're starting to talk about things like double lives. So it's very much a case of art mirroring real life. Mm-hmm. And Mima ends up ruining this take because she is taking notice of Mamania watching her. So she's getting creeped out by him. She's starting to see him wherever she's going, and it's frankly ruining her day job. So <laughs> yeah, stalkers can do that. <laughs> yeah, sh- shockingly yeah. enough. Yeah, that, I mean that's the thing, right? Like it just fills your entire mind and you can't focus on shit. It's so it's I mean it's not it's not paranoia, it's just like a constant state of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Which you do have personal experience with. Oh yeah, I'm so sorry. I wasn't trying to bring that around to me, but yeah, no, yeah, I absolutely do and it does really fucking suck. It sucks sucks sucks. Yeah, it's just it's really rough and It's not helped by the fact that Mima is constantly confronted by not just the the real life stalker who is ruining her day job, but also she's continuing to have these visions in public spaces now. So when she goes into the office, she sees pop idol Mima in the podcast recording that her former colleagues Ray and Yukiko are doing. So she ends up chasing it. Podcast. Do you not think it's a podcast? Like, are they? Joe, it's the nineties. It's the radio. They had podcasts. <laughs> Wait, they had podcasts in the ni- no. No, it's it's a not. it's a live radio show. <laughs> Joe. <laughs> Joe, you sound like a Gen Z person trying to understand. <laughs> this is cutting edge technology, folks. We have facts, we have the internet, and we have burgeoning podcasts in 1997. I mean, okay, to be fair, the internet did exist, and a podcast is a program made available in a digital format for download mm-hmm. over the internet. Sorry to man- Thank you, Jenny. Thank you. Yes. On a I'm accepting all apologies now. <laughs> but this is a complete hallucination, right? Like, this is just her hallucination. Yes. Yeah. Like, I think she's triggered by seeing her former colleagues doing well, and she's like, oh, I miss, I miss being a part of this. And then she she has to chase it to decide whether or not, like, this thing that is ruining my life, is it real? So she does end up following pop idol Mima out through the building, down into the street. She almost gets hit by a car. <laughs> a lot of almost car crashes in this movie. This is true. Yes. Honestly, I never want to hit that point of psychosis where I'm, like, so disoriented of where I'm going that I almost get hit by a moving vehicle. Oh, my God. Oh 
It does feel like a particularly cinematic thing, right? Like, oh, you're you're so out of it that you stumble into traffic. And I'm just like, I've never stumbled into traffic except when I'm not looking at a traffic light because I'm on my phone. Well, have you ever been yeah. hallucinating about a doppelganger of, your, of yourself, Joe? Admittedly, no. <laughs> but fun, fun fact, fun weird fact, the way that Pop Idol Mima bounces around... She just kind of like boing, boing, boings. Mm -hmm. My like imaginary friend that I would see when I would take car rides as a child moved this <gasps> exact same way. Wait, 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 oh, wait. mine did too. Okay, oh, wait, 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 wait. wait. I had an imaginary friend too, but I never actually saw him. You're telling me you actually oh. saw your imaginary friend when you were a kid? No. Yes. Wait, what? Yeah, that, that, that's what he said. <laughs> Yeah, like I, I would envision it. Like you saw it. in your head. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, it was that's, clearly that's in my head. I, yeah. But it was like, there's my friend. Like I would look at the car window and I would like imagine envision that I had this there. character who was accompanying us. No, I mean, I guess like, I, I had an imaginary friend too. His name was Luli, but I never thought I actually saw. I, I would look at the area where I, I, I would say he was, but I, I, I wasn't hallucinating a person there. I don't think Joe said he was hallucinating. He said he would imagine the person in that space. He said when he saw like, the person. Yeah, like I would, I would picture it. I would like fill in the image. Like, did you never actually, like, so you. I did. How would you have a friend but not even know what they would look like? I don't know. Like, I just, when you had conversations with them. Just empty space. I just pretend like there was someone there. But I, it was almost like a faceless thing. Okay, Tracy, you sound like a kid. You sound crazy. Now all just <laughs> <normal here. laughs> You're like, I didn't see anything in a space. I stared at it and then that, <laughs> and had a full just, conversation. I knew someone was there. I, I, I mean, like, here's, oh, okay, the funny thing like is this, ghost. though. I, I actually, I, I don't really remember talking to my imaginary friend. My parents said I did. Um, but I would typically, mm. I would frequently blame things that I did on my imaginary friend. Like when I drew on the walls oh, with crayons. You're just a brat. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is my imaginary friend isn't up to snuff with your imaginary friends. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was fully realized. Mine bounced in the car window like Joe's. I, actually, I thought that was a me thing. That's interesting. That, yeah, that's that actually really funny. <laughs> okay, yeah, so clearly Mima not doing great. Rumi checks her into her bed. But again, this turns out to actually just be a double bind scene when she wakes up in bed and you're like, nope, this is her character who is having like a double life on this TV show. So... It's confusing. We're back to shooting where she messes up the line and only this time it's just not done in the rain and she actually hits her mark. And so I, I love these kind of repetitions where she's waking up in bed, she's shooting, we're seeing it multiple times and you have to pay close enough attention to realize, okay, is this double bind? Is this fantasy or is this real life? Mm. Mm. So she ends up waking up in bed and then Rumi is there and Rumi is like, no, I was here yesterday. This is all happening. <laughs> Don't worry, you're fine. <laughs> or is she gaslighting her? Right? <laughs> Me was like, cool, let me just break this glass. Really Ooh. upset. Yeah. Okay, so we do learn that Mima's character is going to be the killer on Double Bind. So this is the eventual reveal. Ah, uh, yes, love a reveal where the raped woman is actually <laughs> the killer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Made up. <Yep>. Dismissed. <laughs> Not real. Could it Not possibly real. happen? No. <laughs> Why would she do such a thing? Question mark, question mark. Uh, and then we get the real life murder of Murano, who is killed by a screwdriver. And I'm curious, Trace, this was your first time watching this. 
did you see Mima commit this murder or did you see Rumi or did you see both? Well, the interesting thing is this. I, uh, looking back on it, I, I, I don't know what I thought this was, but as well. So this is a bit later, but we get the reveal later whenever Rumi walks out in Mima's clothes. And Rumi is noticeably larger in size than mm-hmm. Mima. And so I didn't even think Rumi at all in this scene because the frame of the person attacking was still pretty petite. Right. But whenever whenever Rumi comes out in that outfit and we it's still like like we're supposed to believe it's Mima, but we pan up starting with Rumi's stomach going up to her face. And before we see Rumi's face, I was like, did they make her bigger? And then we got the reveal and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> yep. I love the way that this is shot slash edited. Like mm-hmm. scenes from this murder are directly overlaid with the photo shoot that Morano did. So it's again very much like, oh, because you did this to Mima, this is what happens to you. Like we're gonna kill you in the same way that you shot her, aka that you killed her innocence and her naive virginity and all that kind of stuff. And this is a really brutal murder scene. Oh yeah. 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 So Mima does end up finding this bloody shirt in her closet, which would seem to confirm that she was either the one who committed the murder or that she was at least there. We'll find out soon. (laughs) So uh, on the double bind set, the crew is taking bets as to who will be killed next, like which person close to Mima is going to be the next to go. Mm. And she's preparing to film this murder sequence, which is the character in double binds revenge for that rape sequence earlier. So as she goes to film it, she imagines that the person she's killing is actually Murano and she has a freak out and then she wakes up back in bed. So you're like, did she film yeah. it? Was the freak out real? What is What's happening? going on in this movie? What's <laughs> happening? <laughs> yeah, and this is revealed to actually be the resolution of Double Bind, and we learned that the character on the TV show has Dissociative Identity Disorder, or DID. Could you imagine if this movie actually had that be the resolution for the movie itself? <laughs> I mean, there are so many movies that have followed this trajectory. I was like, oh, we're that's why I called it an erotic thriller, because I was like, oh, this is sisters. This is dressed to kill. This is like I love sisters. So many of those like 80s erotic thrillers are just like, yup. And the person did it because it was their identical sister that they killed 20 years earlier and then never got over. Well, and that's also like, I mean, and maybe I'm way off base here, but I also got like shades of high tension in this to where I wonder if Aja got uh, was influenced by this at all. Quite possibly. Yeah, I don't know. But um, the reveal isn't as obnoxious as the one in that movie. No, <laughs> more satisfying for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everyone leaves for the rap party because now double buying is over. And this is when Mamania attacks Mimo with a knife. He cuts off her clothes. He tries to rape her Ugh. and she ends up killing him with one side of a hammer. Yes. And this goes on for quite a long time as well. Yeah, not the murder, unfortunately. I could have done with a longer murder and less of the rapey stuff. Well, I was going to say, so I'm not used to seeing animated nudity unless it's in a video game. Like, I actually have seen more nudity in video games than I have in, like, animated TV shows and movies. Mm -hmm. What do we, I mean, there's a lot of boobs in this movie, Mima's boobs, specifically in this movie. Um, I don't know, do y'all view this as, I mean, it is degrading because it's meant to be degrading, but I don't know. 
What? I, yeah, I don't know what my question is. I, I guess I don't know. Like, <laughs> like, why are we seeing so much nudity on this character? Well, I mean, I can't tell you why, but I do think it is a commentary on how we view Moomin. Mm-hmm. I do think that this scene specifically shows the hypocrisy of men, and that if like you feel like you own an idol and you have this image in your head that she is a certain way, and in this case, a certain way is innocent, mm-hmm. um, and then she becomes less innocent. I think the psychology behind it is that you want to you want to ruin her yeah. in the most possible way you could think of, and ruining her to you would mean to go over the line that you had always envisioned her as, which right. is just really fucked up, honestly. But I think that is the psychology behind it. Often, yeah, it's almost like, um, oh, this is what you want, right? Here you go. You asked for it. Yeah, yeah, basically that. It's also such a weird form, like it's the ultimate form of consumption, right? Like it's not just I impose my values or my morals on you. It's that I I need to possess you physically. I will debase you because that is what you apparently have earned in my like fucking twisted mind. But also the best way for me to still accomplish that fandom that I so eagerly covet is to literally invade you physically. <laughs> to soil you yeah. and so that no one else can yeah. have you it's really fucked up so and it's like dumb. this really like messed up way of thinking and a lot of i mean this is why uncontrollable fandom makes me uncomfortable this movie like personifies mm-hmm. it very well yeah this is also why it's like personally when anything like a picture of mine gets like more than like 20 likes i start freaking out mentally because i don't want to be seen (laughs) by that many people and i'm like it it just makes me uncomfortable and sometimes i regret it (laughs) kind of thing yeah where it's like that should be normal though you should sometimes people feel okay with that and that's fine but like there is this thing about people perceiving you and you like they get this image in your head of who you are just based off of images basically Mm -hmm. or even like like a built-up persona in this case yeah, I mean, because part of the reason that Mamania feels comfortable doing this, and even Rumi to a certain extent, is because they have decided who Mima is, right? Yeah. So, right. It's weird. I think it's just, it's such a weird mixture of the femininity of this character and how they want to control her sexuality, but also how they think that they know who she is and what she should stand for and all of these kinds of things. Like, it's the dangers of being a public figure where people think that they know you and therefore have a say in who you are, they want to control you and so on. And I think when you filter that through a gendered lens, it just becomes far scarier because men in particular, when it comes to women are dangerous. Yeah. And I think this movie really, yeah, basically encapsulates that whole feeling and that whole vibe. And I think it makes it, relatable and makes it very visible to why it is so uncomfortable so while the scene is very long i think it is necessary to make the viewer very uncomfortable mm-hmm. right yeah and then we we at least get the pleasure of seeing this character violently dispatched well and also yes. because he's not the, the right. man is not the main villain of this movie <laughs> it's another it's woman he's the secondary villain yeah mm-hmm. which is that fantastic sort of double twist right Because I think a lot of people could watch this movie and say, oh, well, this Mamania character is very obvious, right? He's shallow. He's coded as evil from the minute we see him by the way he's drawn, by the way he's voiced and so on. But 
he's only one of the villains and you could argue he's the lesser of the two because he's so straightforward we understand him implicitly from the jump whereas Rumi is complicated and messy and it goes against societal expectations like a woman shouldn't be doing these kinds of things what is going on here well so I know that Rumi's motive is basically the same as Mamania's motive, but also she wants to replace. Because do y'all read Rumi as queer? So I do, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to advocate for this film yeah. on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely do. I think that it's in, in the same way Black Swan is queer. This is queer. <laughs> Aronofsky, goddamn it, <laughs> he did it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating though, right? Because like she clearly identifies with Mima because she used to be Mima, right? Like she used to have this career and then it clearly either didn't turn her into an idol or she got out of it. But she has designs about how Mima should act, but also she wants to be Mima and maybe not just in that sort of platonic friendly way. Like I will murder you. I will wear your skin. I will become you. I will go inside you. Well, okay. So like, I, we're here oh, already, yes. but my, 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 my th- what is so creepy, Rumi brings her quote unquote home yes. to her room. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then as Mima looks around, she's like, wait, this is. Because mm-hmm. the fish are alive. The, the fish, fish are alive, alive and the post is back <laughs> in the wall, baby. <laughs> the, she has a fucking doppelganger room <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that she brings Mima to. I This love reveal, it. again, I, I did not see this coming at all. I had no, no idea this is where we were heading. I love this entire reveal. This is fantastic. Oh, it's so fantastic. Yeah. And the fact that she's got a similar but not quite the same costume, mm-hmm. like, She's tweaked it or she's brought back the old one, maybe the one that she used to wear. And you're just like, oh, girl, no. (laughs) So it it should be noted, like, folks, if you have not seen this, it's not like, oh, it's just a casual reveal. It's like this older woman, this larger woman is, is dressed up in a pop idol costume. We continue to see pop idol Mima so she looks exactly like Mima only she's dressed as she does when she's on stage Mm -hmm. intermixed with Rumi wearing this outfit so like this whole climax takes place as though it could still be happening in Mima's mind or how Rumi sees herself in pursuit of Mima so like the the hallucination and the kind of dreamlike confusion imagery persists all the way through the climax and I'm actually legitimately, maybe some people don't know about this, but the the climax of this movie is, I want to say, a five-minute long chase scene. Mm-hmm. And I'm surprised this isn't mentioned, because, you know, we always talk, oh, like Helen and I know you last summer, uh, Wendy and Prom Night, uh, Mima in Perfect Blue, here's a good mm-hmm. chase scene right fucking here. You know why, Trace? It's cartoon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, that's exactly it. And people have preconceived notions. This is why Perfect Blue probably took a lot longer to get into the horror community versus like the anime community right um, right which is hilarious because this <laughs> really like the anime community has some fucked up people in it <laughs> so like, any, like any genre right. but like oh man there's layers to that one that sometimes make me uncomfortable mm-hmm. but yeah it's so fascinating that people inherently dismiss animated films that are designed to be viewed from adults mm-hmm. 
when they aren't in that anime culture already, which I admit I was one of those people for a really long time because I, I had people in my Japanese classes that made me feel uncomfortable sometimes with the way they, uh, it basically idolized and glorified a lot of stuff that this movie kind of gets into. Right. Right. Yeah. What's tough too. I mean, like, there's always been a stigma against animated works. Like even right. nowadays, like think about it at last year's Oscars, they literally introduced best animated film as though it was a kid's movie. And you're just like, Nope, that's not actually accurate. But I mean, for me, it kind of harkens back to what you were asking about earlier, Trace, where you said like, Oh, there's like an uncomfortable amount of female nudity in this movie. And mm-hmm. I think a large part of it is about, Con trying to get us to think about that male gaze, getting us to think about how we view and how we sexualize women's bodies. But also, I just think it's like, this is a very distinctly adult movie. Like, these are adults with sexual interests and psychoses, and they are working through their internal shit. Like, no part of this anime feels appropriate for anyone like underage and i think maybe that's maybe that's why so yeah jenny like, maybe i have these preconceived notions about animation sometimes in my head too and so when i'm seeing a rape scene when i'm seeing nudity when i'm seeing violence like this it's the juxtaposition against what has historically been a medium for children that makes it seem more taboo in a way mm-hmm. but i think at the end of the day i think that is a big difference between an american sees animation yes. versus yes uh someone else sees animation like in Japan specifically, and anime culture, anime is made for adults. Yes. Like, it's adult storytelling. Manga is made for adults. It's yeah. adort, ad, adult, adort. <laughs> mm-hmm. adult storytelling. And that's why they have different, like, layers to um, anime. I mean, like, you mentioned there's a lot of nudity in this. And I'm like, well, hentai exists. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In my mind. Which actually, I feel like, is the most safe way to digest porn because it's all animated. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is the gay ver- It's Yaoi, right? Is the get that the gay porn? I think yeah. so. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, yeah. I guess. Yeah, yeah. That that's true. Yeah. And so it's it's interesting because I do find that I I like the culture of anime in that it is built for adults. Like it is something that is consumed by adults, and no one judges you for it. Yeah. Which right. I think is like very different from an American mindset specifically. Mm-hmm. Where people will judge you for watching an adult cartoon. Oh yes. That being said, sometimes people on from any work country get really weirdly obsessed with cartoon adult well, cartoons. No, and I, I I I say this, and I'm sitting here, I'm like, well, I do watch that Harley Quinn cartoon, which is full of blood yeah. and gore and very mm-hmm. R rated. That's true. You also watch like Big Mouth and stuff, right? Yeah, I guess. But I yeah. guess I, 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 this is not going to make any sense. But this is clearly how my brain is processing this. That those are funny. This is serious. Like, and moving into this chase scene, like, it's the way that, you know, we've talked about how Mima runs and kind of like glides and bounces around. Mm -hmm. It's even scarier in this scene specifically because beforehand you're just like, oh, like, this is just her hallucination, whatever. She's a crazy bitch, whatever. Uh, No, she's really in danger right now. This is a real person chasing her and she's doing it like this. I mean, not really, but like, that's what we're seeing. Yeah, and she seems unstoppable, right? Like, this chase does go on forever. We're going along rooftops. We're falling multiple stories down into alleyways. 
the violence here is very real. Like Mima does not get off scot-free. She gets stabbed in the shoulder and we're breaking store windows. I Okay, so I want to pause here because mm-hmm. I'm curious from both of your perspectives. Does Rumi try to die by suicide here? I do not think so. I think she is so consumed. It, it's like um by losing the wig. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know what to do. So I don't I don't think she sees anything. She, she, she stopped trying to kill Mima. It's like Michael Myers losing the mask. Yes. Like she she has no vision of anything around her except this wig. That is how I view this scene. Disorientation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's her entire identity, right? It's who she's created herself to be. Mm-hmm. But do you agree with that, Jenny? Or do you have a different reading? No, I definitely agree with that. I do not think it is... A suicide attempt. Yeah. Okay. But oh my god, did I gr- not not groan? But did I oof whenever yeah. she leans over on that shard of glass? <laughs> oh boy. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. That is. Yeah. I think it's all disorientation. Mm-hmm. Um. But then again, you could see it the other way, where perhaps in death she becomes immortalized as her. Hmm. Yeah. Like she she never is proven wrong because she never got exposed. Right. right. Yeah. So it could be a quick. Yeah, I, I could see the other argument actually now. Yeah. In any case, one of one of the saving graces of this. So we we haven't really talked about this, but this is obviously a huge subversion. We've got Rumi, who is a female serial killer, potentially. I guess it depends on how you want to read who did the murders. I always read it as Rumi did the murders and Mamania did like the website and the creepy stalker shit. Oh. You think he did the website? Well, he he was being fed by Rumi, right? Like, she's the oh, one who's right, emailing right. him, yeah, but he's right. the one who set it up and is obviously yeah. stalking her by taking all the pictures and that kind of stuff. Right, true. Okay. But she's still the puppeteer. Yeah. I kind of see it as her thing still at the end of the day, mm-hmm. using him. Yeah. But do you see Mamania doing any of the murders, or were they all Rumi? <sighs> I think it's all me. Yeah, I I guess the thing is though, like here's the thing though. So do we do we think that Rumi believes she is Mima when she is communicating with Mamania, or do we think yes. that Rumi is aware of what she is doing? No. Okay. No, I think she's totally lost it. Yeah. Because in the end, That's the whole um, point. you know, when she's in this psychiatric hospital, we we hear that every once in a while, Rumi will have like a lucid day and she'll remember who she is. But most of the time she is pop idol Mima. That's also where I got high tension from, by the way, was this final scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I do like that she doesn't die. And she doesn't die because Mima doesn't exact vengeance or revenge or any kind of aggression on her. Mima saves her from certain death. Oh, yeah. I love that because it shows that she cared about her still. Yes. And she, I feel, unlike Mimania, I think she has more empathy for Rumi Mm -hmm. because of their shared relationship. Well, I also think, maybe maybe this is wrong, Rumi doesn't know, as we just established, Rumi doesn't know what she's doing. She is literally psychotic to the point where she has created an entirely different identity for herself. Yes. So there's a lack of consciousness there where I don't, I can't extend that same leniency to Mamania, who I don't think has, I think he's fully conscious of what he's doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just so 
interesting, like in a very subtle way, though, like the movie doesn't hit you over the doesn't hit you in the head with a hammer. about it. <laughs> but it just it just kind of leaves you with this, right? Like there's something sad and tragic and a little bit pathetic about what Rumi has been diminished to, like what life in the industry has done to her. And we learned that Mima has gone on to become even more famous because she's getting very publicly recognized by people at this hospital. But she's still totally fucked up because when she gets into the car at the end of the movie, she has to reassure herself that she is real oh. when she looks at the rearview mirror. I actually read this totally differently. I read this as like closure of her being like, yep, this is me. And like, hmm. I'm happy with my life now. Jenny, how do you read this? I mean, the scene is so wild. It's like him throwing you at the very end where he's like, oh, uh, but is this, is she the real thing? Is it real? What's I'm real? I'm like, ah, it's the spinning top. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. No, I, I didn't even consider an alternative read, so I'm really glad you both brought this up. But yeah, no, I, because I'm like, her career is successful. People are recognizing. I'm like, oh my God, that couldn't be Mima. She wouldn't be at a mental. So she's made it. And so I, I, I totally, maybe it's the eternal optimist in me, but I totally sure. view this as a happy ending. <laughs> I mean, I, oh, I think that's nice. probably the way you're meant to read it with that underlying question. And then for me, I'm like, yeah, but we just saw what the future could be for her. Like yeah. <laughs> what the industry does to girls like her, chews them up, spits them out, and turns them into roomies. Well, that's, I guess that's the other thing too. Yeah, I mean, I, I empathize with Rumi, but we don't get, that side of it i mean we yes no. we can infer exactly what you just said she was chewed up and spit out by this industry but we don't get any of that because unfortunately well and that was khan's idea right because he said like so many of the horror films they want to like like go into the killer stuff i want to mm-hmm. do the victim yeah so I, I get it but i'm also kind of like oh but like you know what actually would be really interesting if there was a companion film to this where it's the whole film but told from Rumi's pov oh man It would lose some of the mystique, but as a character study, I would find that very fascinating. For sure. I mean, we we haven't talked about it. I think, Tracy, you and I talked about it offline. But for me, the shot that absolutely sells this movie is during the chase scene where you see Rumi running. Like, we, we see pop idol Mima gliding down the street, and we see Rumi's reflection, like what she actually looks like. And she is haggard and out of breath and sweating and gasping and just terrifying. Mm -hmm. And we get to see both of these and they're both true, at least to Rumi. But it's just it's so fucking visually captivating. And, And I think that for me, that's the whole thing. Like this movie is stunningly gorgeous. It's terrifying. It has so much going on, but it's also in some ways incredibly simplistic. Like, yes, the story it's telling is that what we do to female starlets will just absolutely destroy them because we are shit to them. And it's so simple. And yet everything about this movie just works for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think a lot of this movie works for me. It was one that I instantly loved. I think Khan is one of the greatest directors of all time, even with like a small filmography i think he Mm -hmm. just nails it in every film he just nails it yeah well i think that's perfect blue so what are your what are your final thoughts on this film everyone i mean i kind of just said mine yeah i I did too (laughs) trace what did you think uh yeah no i mean as a as a first time watch um i quite enjoyed this i i I honestly feel the need to go watch it again 
to kind of pick up on more of these things that we've discussed today. Because, I mean, we, we talked about things I didn't even consider during my viewing yesterday. But yeah. I think it's very beautiful. Um, at the risk of simplifying it too much and saying it's a hell of a twist, I think it's a hell of a twist. Uh, uh-huh. I really, really enjoyed this, and I'm glad I, you know, I'm glad you introduced it to me, Joe. Ah, yeah, <laughs> and honestly, I'm just super happy that more people seem to be taking notice of it, and I hope it becomes maybe a bit of a gateway to other anime films or maybe just other anime horror films my god if we actually get a th- like a not theatrically released but like if we get it like an animated be it cgi or 2d horror film that would be awesome <laughs> i would love to see that oh man i feel like now you're just inviting people to be like oh trace i know let me draw you a list They're yeah here's here. this one here's this one mm-hmm. and i'm not talking about rob zombies that world of el super bisto that's fine um <laughs> but anyway okay well that that is perfect blue everyone so <laughs> before we announce what we're covering next week uh jenny where can people find you on social media Oh, you can find me at Jenny Lee X33 and Lee is spelled L-E-I-G-H and that's Jenny with a Y. Awesome. And it's the same handle everywhere. Twitter, letters and rocks. <laughs> Keeps it simple, right? Serialized. <laughs> 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 oh man well if you want to get in touch with us you can reach us on twitter and instagram at horrorqueers or shoot us an email at horrorqueers at gmail.com find us on letterbox to keep track of all the films we've covered or go to our youtube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot button issues with some of our peers like jenny uh and if you want to chat with other listeners please join our horror queers group over on facebook If you want to show us some love, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, And if you want to give us money, please uh, come support more Horror Queers by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. This month, oh, we've got episodes discussing the morals and ethics of true crime, courtesy of shows like Dahmer. The uh, horror satire, The Menu, and we're playing a bit of catch up with episodes on Barbarian and Smile since we weren't able to cover them when they actually hit theaters because... There was too much shit that was coming out. It was a lot. And um, we've also got an audio commentary on the sequel that's better than the original, The Collection, which will be celebrating its 10th anniversary this month. Woot. Yes. But Joe, mm-hmm. we're gearing up towards American Thanksgiving, because uh, I learned that Canadian Thanksgiving is very different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but So what are we covering next week? Yeah, we're going to go a little bit more family-friendly next week, Trace. So even though it's not animated... As you mentioned, we will be celebrating American Thanksgiving, and uh, we're going to do a little bit of Adam's family values, just to, you know, really celebrate the holiday. I act like I was surprised again this was happening. I fucking love this movie. (laughs) I haven't seen this movie in probably 25 years. (gasps) I'm excited to revisit it. Joe, okay, I I love that you're saying it's, like, family-friendly, because it is, like, Brady, it's, it's the very Brady sequel version of the adams family like Mm -hmm. the innuendos in this movie are endless (laughs) yeah i mean i i have fond memories i watched the first one a lot and the second one not as much but i i remember them being much smarter than people realize that's really funny i watched values constantly growing up i didn't even know there was a first movie until i hit high school probably oh my god i know (laughs) (laughs) okay we'll talk about that next week week. but anyway um until next week we can cross out perfect blue yes and jenny thank you as always for your expertise thank you for inviting me as always (laughs) all right and we'll cross out horror queers (laughs) 